Lasso. I hope you're getting comfortable. This will take a little while. <laughs> yes, you just had your warning. I'm going to try to string together today in a coherent and actually somewhat integrated fashion a return to the section of Shantideva's text. And actually, I'm going to go read over the earlier lines. I don't think I did them justice yesterday. So I want to go through them again, try to shed clearer light on them. And uh, I can say that I was reading both translations that I've been involved with. One I did primarily, and then actually had Vesna's help. This was a long time ago. My wife, uh, long before we were married, when we simply had a friendship, but she has expert Sanskrit, so she helped me out, very good friend. Uh, so an earlier one that I did as actually part of my thesis at Amherst, which was oh, I submitted in 1985, the ninth chapter with His Holiness' commentary. So it has that extra perk. It's been published for a long time called Transcendent Wisdom. Just the ninth chapter with Dalai Lama's commentary. Uh, and then also consulting then the translation she and I did more recently in the late 90s, where she really did full scale, did a full translation from the Sanskrit, and then I uh, then integrated that with the Tibetan. But I really found His Holiness's commentary very helpful here. So I'm going to be reading that. So I presume, I hope by now you have, um, I have not gotten conf confirmation from the front desk, but have anybody checked to see whether you can get the text? It is there. Very good. Okay. So the text that I'll be reading, slight variation, but nothing significant. Because I look at both, they're both good. They're both fine. So it's just grammatical, tiny, tiny differences. So there's that. So we will get to that. And this is classic Buddhist philosophy, which I find to be timeless uh, and, and really definitely worthy of very deep investigation, calling forth all of our intelligence. No blind faith, please. All the intelligence we can muster. But the other one is very contemporary, and it's a matter of enormous importance. And I shall really try to speak in a level fashion without my le letting my passions get let me carry get carried away, because I know they do at times, especially when something is very, very important. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep level here, because it's easy for me to kind of like, you know, as you might have noticed on occasion. <laughs> so I'm going to link this with a comment I made yesterday, that if you're listening carefully, you might have had some qualm thinking, now that nobody could say that. I just made a throw, not a throw, but just a very fleeting reference yesterday to having read in major media uh, the term placebo drugs. Placebo drugs. And that this is being used seriously. That term, I, I came up. And if you're, if you're thinking about that, you, you might really have some serious qualm. Like, now nobody's that stupid. I mean, really, nobody can be that stupid and not get, not get published in major media because a placebo, by definition, is not a drug. If it's a drug, it's not a placebo. It's like dog and apple. You can be one or the other, but you just can't be a dog apple, right? They're just completely incompatible. If it's a drug, it's not a placebo. If it's a placebo, so nobody in his right mind would say placebo drug, right? I must have made a mistake. Slip of the tongue. Alan does that sometimes. I should never refer to myself in the third person. <laughs> I do that on occasion. Well, it was not a slip of the tongue, and I'm going to give you a direct quote, and that's going to be the launching pad for the first part of what I'd like to share with you this afternoon. And I'm, I'm very much holding in mind people listening to my podcast. I've heard from various sources that really all over the world and a wide variety of people. So I'm really very, very explicitly, very consciously holding you in mind, as especially for this, well, for the whole thing. But... I invite you to listen carefully, and the implications are very large. 
And they really call for dramatic action. Benevolent, compassionate, but really dramatic action. Because the, I will make a case, I will make my case, that we're facing a real crisis here. So to back up my statement earlier, that uh, this actually occurred, uh, this was in, um, published in Reuters, so major, major media publication, Reuters, APA, and so forth. And here's the statement. Placebo drugs, and a direct quote, uh, and the name of the article was Antidepressants, Antip Antidepressants Give Drug Makers the Blues. And to give them the blues means makes them depressed. Antidepressants make drug makers depressed. That sounds like a vicious cycle. But here's just a quote from it. And by the way, it's on Reuters, and it's March 23rd, 2012. So it's very recent. Very, very recent, okay? And here's the statement. So just to show that I wasn't, just didn't have a lapse of memory or slip of the tongue. Here's the direct quote. Placebo drugs, or sugar pills. So now sugar pills become placebo drugs. Okay? Remember that the next time you buy a sugar cube. It's about a drug. Placebo drugs, or sugar pills, typically have and listen to every word here. Placebo drugs or sugar pills typically have a massive impact in lifting depression. <laughs> Underscoring the subtlety of the disease and the suggestibility of patients. That makes it, quote, very, very hard to prove that a particular drug is actually working, according to, who would you guess? Who would make a statement like that? And I'm going to be very critical here, but my point is not to criticize individuals, so I probably won't mention any name of a person or any name of any pharmaceutical company or university or anything like that, because the point is not to attack people or institutions. The point is to attack Delusion, falsity, greed, arrogance, and the policies that come from them. And there I will be absolutely ruthless, absolutely merciless, but with no harm intended to any person. Okay? So any guesses? Who would make an idiotic statement like that? I mean, it's sheer idiocy. Isn't it not to say that sugar has a massive impact in uplifting people from... And of course, it doesn't matter whether it's sugar, it could be salt. It could be chalk. A placebo really doesn't matter what it is, but now they're called placebo drugs. So no, I won't hold you in suspense, but I'm going to keep it anonymous. Research head of one of the major pharmaceutical companies in the United States. Head of research. So not a person in a mental asylum, not a person who is a babbling idiot, or maybe babbling idiot, but nevertheless the head of a research head for a major pharmaceutical industry. So there it is. He actually said that. That sugar pills typically have a massive impact in lifting depression. There's, I mean, there's no way to read that other than this man is delirious because he's actually attributing, how else do you read this? Attributing the efficacy of this to a sugar pill and calling it a drug. Now that's just flat out idiocy. This is, so one could, but now you imagine this, made, this meant research head for one of these large, you know, billion dollar Pharmaceutical, it's, I know the name. It's a big one. Okay? It doesn't matter which one. It could be any of them. So this is, I always find interesting. When really foolish people who have very, very low intelligence say stupid things, it doesn't perturb me at all. 
And when very intelligent people say very wise things, that doesn't fluster me at all. But this man's got to be really smart. You don't get to be head of research of a Maber pharmaceutical company by being stupid. And yet this is an idiotic statement. Right. So then that really raises my interest. What makes intelligent people make idiotic statements? And there's an answer for that. It's called ideology. It's called dogma-induced dementia. So why is this more than just a little time to ridicule an anonymous person from an anonymous pharmaceutical industry? Because I'm not here to ridicule any person at all. Much, much more enjoyable ways to spend time, especially our very precious time together. But I will share with you a little bit of statistics from the World Health Organization. So I think they speak with some objectivity and authority. And they report recently that one in four persons will develop one or more mental or behavioral disorders during their lives. In other words, mental disease is a very, very large-scale issue, and this is worldwide. One in four. So how we are treating mental disease becomes a matter of enormous importance. I continue. Mental ill health is increasing. So for all of the growth of how, how many more psychiatrists do we have now than 50 years ago, how many more psychotherapists and how many more drugs do we have, simultaneously mental disease is on the rise. Something isn't working. I mean, if you've got polio and you have more and more doctors who have a successful treatment for polio, more and more doctors, more, med more medicine, less and less polio. That's just how it always works, right? TB, polio, AIDS, and so forth and so on. More doctors, more good medicine, the disease goes down. We have more doctors and more and more psychopharmaceutical drugs, and mental disease is going up. Connect the dots. Mental ill health is increasing, and by the year 2020, neuropsychiatric conditions, interesting, they don't just say psychiatric, they say neuropsychiatric conditions, will account for 15% of disability worldwide quite a large percentage. And again, by the year 2020, depression will be the highest ranking cause of disease in the developed world. Okay? So that shows this is nothing just to joke around or be a bit sarcastic or what have you. This is an enormous amount of suffering we're talking about here. And suffering, the whole point of suffering for medicine, for all of medicine, is to alleviate suffering. For all of Buddha Dharma is to alleviate suffering. So this is our job. This is our job, right? And it's not happening. So to take a, a smattering, my, 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 my pick, what are some of the kind of mental diseases, mental disorders that rise very large on the horizon that are very, very commonly spoken of, for which there's many, many, many people suffering? Because that's why I'm talking about this. Not just because I've got an ax to grind. But there's suffering here that could be alleviated, and it's clearly not being alleviated. Depression, already cited. Anxiety comes in many flavors, but general anxiety disorder, big umbrella term, two. Post-traumatic stress disorder. There are so many things within a family, within a community, within a nation, and so forth, so, for so many reasons. Natural calamities, social strife, war, and so forth. Abuse of all kinds. Post-traumatic stress disorder that you're not only harmed at the event, but you have lingering effects that can go on for decades, perhaps actually, oh, damage your whole life. 
So there's a third one. ADHD is on the rise. And it's on the rise, and for many obvious reasons, many of them have to be environmental. We're living in an ADHD world. How could it not? So there's four. And then a simple thing, insomnia. If you can't sleep, if you're tortured every night because you're tossing and turning, frustrated, anxious, fearful, and so forth. These are psychological disorders. And so what is the major intervention? What is the primary mode, especially in terms of getting it paid for by insurance for any of these psychological disorders? It is drugs. It is drugs. As I mentioned before, in the United States, first, if you have a psychological disorder, any of the above, for example, you're required, first of all, as as I understand it, I have insurance, you need to go to your, 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 your... personal physician who's an internist, generalist. And then that physician may, if he or she feels it, it necessary, then refer you to a psychiatrist, but in many cases they don't. They say, oh, you're suffering from anxiety disorder. Well, I know what the psychiatrist will say anyway, and so here's the drug. And I'm a doctor, I can prescribe it. And they will. Okay? So I went eeny, meeny, miny, mo, but not quite, because I knew of a certain drug, and again, I'm going to keep it anonymous. I'm not here to beat up on any particular drug or any company. But this is a drug like many others. And if you really wanted to check it out, you could find out which one I'm referring to. But that's, that's your choice. My point is not to pick out one particular drug. But this one happens to be a drug that you take if you've been, anxi- if, if, if you've been diagnosed as having anxiety or panic disorder. So how many people experience anxiety or panic disorder? Sometimes it is really troubling, and you go to your physician thinking, I'm really desperate here. Can you help me? And the doctor, maybe your internist, or maybe get referral to a psychiatrist, says, yes, and your insurance will cover it. It's good news. And here's the drug, and hopefully this will help, because this is a drug specifically designed to alleviate your anxiety and panic disorder. Right? Well, what the doctor may or may not tell you is that the drug comes with side effects, possible side effects. I checked out this drug. I checked it out on multiple websites. And from one website to another, the list of detrimental side effects just got longer and longer and longer. And I thought, is there any end to it? I found the website, and these are good websites, uh, which had the longest list, and it said at the end, this is not a complete list of all the detrimental side effects. It was really long. I mean, one of them was 27. So here's one drug. You've just gone to your doctor because you're suffering from anxiety or a panic attack. And you go to your doctor, and the doctor gives you this drug, and you are taking refuge. Because what do you know? You're just taking a little tip, which is really very easy to swallow. Right? Here are, just, this is not even a complete list, but you've, you're feeling anxiety and some pan- maybe some panic attacks. You've taken the drugs, and what you may or may not be told are here are some of the possible side effects. You ready? Sexual dysfunction. Okay, now for some of you, that's, just the, end, that's the end of the story right there. Okay, I'm not, I'm not taking it. Okay, on a light note, sexual dysfunction, that's one possible. Liver problems, seizures, giant hives, muscle spasms. You cannot focus your thoughts. Loss of memory, slurred speech, mania, difficulty in breathing, confusion, hallucinations, New or worsening mental or mood changes, depression, irritability, anxiety. (laughs) 
suicidal thoughts or actions and paradoxical excitement. So basically bipolar mania. That's not the whole list. Now, when I read one of the websites, it was a medical website, it said, should, should you experience any of these symptoms, seek medical attention right away. But you got those symptoms by seeking med- <laughs> medical attention right away. <laughs> what do you imagine? Let your imagination just fly here. You've gotten one or more of those side effects. And you go and you do exactly what the website says. You seek medical attention. And you say, doctor, I'm experiencing confusion, hallucinations, mood changes, depression, irritability, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. And I cannot flow. I have loss of memory through speech, mania. What do you imagine the doctor will give you? Is maybe the same drug. When you tell him, no, that was the drug I already took. What do you expect would be coming? Another drug. What do you expect its list will look like? Do you think it's going to be any better? And if so, why on earth do you think that? It's laughable. It makes it want to just belly laugh and then not just, just not know when to stop weeping. That this is poison. It's, a, it's hard to imagine one substance being poisonous in so many different ways. Strychnine just kills you. Arsenic just kills you. This is poisonous in two dozen ways. How could they make a a drug that could be poisonous in so many ways? That takes some ingenuity or stupidity. So I find this very concerning that this continues to be the major intervention, drugs like that. And I I can see the, the name of the drug and I can see the producer. If this were an isolated case, then I would say, hey, nail that one drug. Those people are bad people. But no, there's nothing special about this drug. Just one more psychopharmaceutical drug. So why is this head of research at one of the major pharmaceutical companies, why is he so concerned? Why is he so concerned that it makes it so very, very hard to prove the particular drug is actually working? The pharmaceutical industry has been producing antidepressants just for starters for decades, decades and decades. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it's one of the most lucrative general industries in, in the modern world, pharmaceutical industry. They just they can't count the money that's coming in so fast. And they have tremendous lobbying power. In the United States, fantastic lobbying power. And for something like 30, 40 years, they're producing just one after another of these antidepressant drugs. And then only a few years ago, and, I went, and this was from the American, oh, was it, I think it was JAMA, or maybe it was, it was one of the premier journals, I think I cited it earlier, where finally some people in the medical establishment did this meta-study of this whole range of psychopharmaceutical drugs for depression. And they found they were all worth nothing except in extremely severe cases of depression. And besides that, they were marginally better than eating sugar tablets. This is after 40 years or so of the pharmaceutical industry peddling this snake oil at very high prices and enormous profits. 
And shall we really believe that the pharmaceutical industry that created these drugs and had to test them, shall we really believe that they didn't know? Shall we re are we really that gullible when they are testing their own product? Shall we really believe that they didn't know that their drugs were no better than placebos? Or could they be that stupid? I don't think so. I think the only reasonable conclusion is they know perfectly well. But they saw that they could pull the wool over the government's eyes and they got FDA approval for all of these drugs they produced because they didn't harm anybody except for those minor side effects. Like you might want to kill yourself. So the government went along with it. Not a government not only goes along with it, government provides them public funds to help them out researching such drugs. They had to have known all along. I cannot imagine that they were so stupid that they didn't know that their own drugs weren't working. But they recognized people who are really depressed and suffering from other mental diseases are stupider. And not just stupider, they will trust. They will trust their physicians, they'll trust the pharmaceutical industry, they'll trust the government to protect them from charlatans. So we're all taking refuge. That came up earlier in one of our discussions. You don't start taking refuge when you become Buddhist. You've already been taking refuge. We all take refuge. We take refuge in our dentist when we need a filling. We need our teeth cleaned. We take refuge. Because we're not going to study dentistry long enough so we can clean our own teeth, which would probably be a, be a botched job anyway. So we all take refuge, especially when we're suffering, mental suffering, physical suffering. But I want fo focus here on mental suffering. We're desperate. We need help. And we need to call upon, we need to rely upon, place our trust in people who know more than we do. So naturally, the first line is the, the medical sangha, the doctors especially, because they're the only ones that get to prescribe these drugs. And I'm talking right now medical, mental disorders. You have to go to the psychiatrist. The psychotherapist can't prescribe drugs, but the psychiatrist, the MD, is a medical establishment. You take refuge there. Where's the drug coming from? The doctor didn't invent them. That's, so that, that's your sangha. What are you really relying upon? What's your real refuge? Not the doctor. The doctor is simply conveying, like, like the sangha, like the nurse, like the medical personnel, is conveying to you the real refuge, that which you're really placing your trust in. And that's what you're putting in your mouth. That's the drug. Your dharma, your path, is the drugs you're taking produced by the pharmaceutical industry. And you're trusting them that they are not there just to make a buck or a billion bucks, but they are there doing what they say they're doing, and that is they're doing their very best to come up with medications that help to alleviate suffering and the causes of suffering. You're placing your trust there. That's your dharma. The pharmaceutical industry is your dharma. The medical establishment is your sangha. But now who's behind that? Who really knows what's going on? All these drugs, these complicated drugs, these are having an effect on what organ? Well detrimental side effects on your liver and so forth and so on. But what they're explicitly designed to do, of course, the targeting of the brain. So who's your Buddha? Who's, who really knows what's going on here? The neuroscientific community, those who really speak with the greatest authority about the brain, because that's what the drugs are designed to treat, your brain. And so your Buddha are the neuroscientists, specifically the cognitive neuroscientists, but generally the community as a whole 
the professionals that rely, rely upon, you know, you are the ones who know. You're as close to omniscient as we get. You're not omniscient, but you're the best we get. Tell us about the brain, because the pharmaceutical industry is learning from you. They're not brain scientists. They're producing drugs. And the medical doctors are not pharmaceutical people, nor are they brain scientists. They're healers, or trying to be healers. And so our refuge, the proxy to the Buddha, is the neuroscientist. Ever since George Herbert Walker Bush declared the 1990s to be the decade of the brain, there's been this exponential growth in the United States of funding for brain science. They have, they're just an enormous amount of money flowing. Enormous amount. Very deliberately. There must have been tremendously good lobbying to get all the way to the president to declare a whole decade for your own particular discipline. That took some major clout. And it succeeded. A decade for the brain. So the neuroscientists must have been singing and dancing in the street when that happened. Because they now know the, 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 the money's just going to flow in. And it did. And as a result of lots of money coming into a science, you generally get a lot of knowledge. And that is exactly what's happened. Since 1990, the, the knowledge about the brain, specific parts of the brain, functions of the brain, global activity of the brain, and so forth, technology for studying the brain, exponential increase. Really good science, something to rejoice in. We know so much more. We, the scientific community, they let us know by way of the media, know so much more about the brain than we did just 22 years ago. And really, money talks. I mean, really good science, as we all know, is very expensive. And there's a, here's one real case in point. Neuroscience is not cheap. And so exponential growth of knowledge, consensual knowledge, valuable knowledge about the brain but it's startling somewhat to neurologists, to brain scientists, fully aware of the tremendous progress they've made over these 22 years. And of course, before then, but boy, the last 22 years have been a jackpot, bonanza. They've been troubled, startled, puzzled by the fact that while their knowledge of the brain and so many aspects of the brain, its functioning and so forth, chemically and electrically, while the knowledge has increased exponentially during these 22 years, there has been no, not even any remotely corresponding increase in the efficacy of psychopharmaceutical drugs for effectively treating even the symptoms of mental disease, let alone getting to the root causes and actually healing them. So you take the drug for a little while, it gets to the root, and then you are free. You no longer have that mental disease because you actually went to the root. There is, it's not there. Anybody who's studying this area knows that's the case. I read it just recently in, a, in an article, solid article. Neuroscientists saying, I'm really perplexed by this. We know so much more, but there's no corresponding growth of the production of effective psychopharmaceutical drugs. It's, it's not happening. Fancy that. How could that be? Well, go figure. So where does ideology come in? Let's ask a few questions first. Okay, Nature of consciousness. Because clearly consciousness has to be implicated in any mental disorder. If you're not conscious of the mental disorder, then you don't have it. And the, and the, and the mental disorder has to, ha must have to do, in terms of its etiology, how it arises, must have something to do with consciousness. Because that's its home, that's where it's manifesting. So what do we scientifically know now, after 135 years of mind science? If we started 137 years, if we started in 19, 1875, 
uh, somewhat arbitrary, but pretty close. So 137 years of mind science, and experimental science in psychology, neuroscience, behavioral science, and so forth. Now, after all that time, decades upon decades, a whole 20th century, which witnessed the greatest exponential growth of scientific knowledge in the history of humanity. Absolutely fabulous. So in the midst of that, and the mind science is being no exception, part of that ex exponential growth, now after all that tremendous progress, now what can the scientific community say, please now tell us what are, what are some of the core discoveries you've made about the nature of consciousness? Well, we've covered that one. Can't define it. We have no consensual definition. We can't measure it at all in anything. Not in a developing human fetus, not in a person who's brain dead, not in senile, not in healthy adults, not in animals, not in primitive animals. If, if insect-eating plants are conscious, we have no way of knowing. Our coral consciousness, they're animals, but you don't know. In other words, complete 100% ignorance. We can't measure it at all scientifically. We don't know this necessary and sufficient causes to produce it. We don't know what causes consciousness. We don't know what happens to it death. Since you don't know what causes it, then you really don't have a clue what terminates it. There's a symmetry there. And then on top of that, we have this whole mind-body issue. And so what we know from these last 20, 20, 22 years, and before then, of course, is just increasing exponential, exponential growth of scientific knowledge, really good knowledge, about this is correlated to this, this is correlated to that. And so these wonderful correlations between very specific neuronal activities and very specific subjective mental experiences. Fantastic science. Now we ask the question, good, what's the nature of these correlations? Yeah, what's the nature of them? William James laid out three, three possibilities. What's the nature of these correlations? Because all we know is they are correlated, but that's a very big category. All different kinds of ways things can be correlated. What's the nature of the correlations? If you find any honest, reflective neuroscientist and pin him down, say, what exactly is the nature of the correlations? That honest neuroscientist will tell you, we don't really know. We'd like to know, but we don't know. This is a young science. Please give us time. But we don't know. It's fair enough. If you don't know something, you simply say you don't know. That's only honest. Good. Now that we've had this serious conversation, when they're in front of the microphone, when they're reporting to the media, what are they saying? The mind is what the brain does. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm not saying this is my bullshit opinion. I'm not saying this is my speculation. I'm not saying this is one of, my, one of many hypotheses that I prefer. I'm just telling you, this is the way it is. Or, to quote another neuroscientist, world famous, you are a brain carrying a body in your back. Human beings are brains. To quote a psychiatrist quoted in the, in the New York Times, all psychological disorders are neurological disorders. They are nothing other than neurological disorders. So it seems like you know after all. Because you're saying the mind is the brain, it's a function of the brain, it's a phenomenon of the brain, but pretty much the mind is the brain. So you do know, right? Because that's what you're telling everybody in the media. So when did you find this out? That's a really important discovery. When you discover that the correlation is actually a correlation of identity, that in fact they're the same thing viewed from different sides, when was that discovery made? What was the evidence? It must have made, who got the Nobel Prize for that? That's an enormously important discovery. And then you find nobody's made that discovery. We just think you're stupid. No, we don't mean that. This is shorthand. 
This is shorthand. It's just a manner of speaking. You know, we just shorthand. Yeah, but what about when you say the brain is doing this and the brain is doing that and these neurons are communicating with each other and they're sending messages to each other and the neurons know where they are and this part of the brain feels this and your thoughts are in this part of the brain, your emotions are in this part of the brain. Where is the evidence for any of that? All you know is correlations, but you just said you actually don't know the nature of the correlations. So why are you saying that, that the brain now is the agent and everything that's happening is really the brain is doing it and you don't even really exist, but if you do, you're just watching, watching the show as an illusion? Where's the evidence for that? Oh, you don't have any. That's more shorthand, is it? You're talking to children who really don't understand? You think we're all stupid? Do we or do we not take literally your statements that, elect, that neurons talk to each other? They communicate. They send messages back and forth. Do we take that literally? Or is this a children's story? You're treating us as if we're in kindergarten, the en entire population of the planet. And you're talking down to us like we have crap for brains. When do you talk seriously? When do you talk honestly? Obviously not to the press. Because every time you report, and I mean with virtually no exception, the brain is the agent, not you, and not your mind. The brain is the agent. How can you train your brain? The brain makes the decisions. The brain does this. The brain does that. The brain is the agent. It's ubiquitous now in the media. In other words, the mind is the brain. But again, when did you discover that? Oh, you haven't. Then why are you saying this as if you know what you're talking about? Why don't you simply say we really do not understand the nature of the relationship between mind and brain? And we're going to repeat you of this because we're honest and humble people. And we want to acknowledge where we don't know something. Why are you doing the opposite? Deceiving everybody and telling everybody they are brains. You are now taking on the authority of telling us what our human nature is and who we are. One of the biggest philosophical problems, questions in all of human history. And you're saying now you have a franchise, that you are the, the go-to people. You who know about the brain and don't have a clue about the actual relationship between mind and brain. But you're taking on the authority now that if we want to know about human nature, who you really are, what is your identity, who are you, what is the nature of your mind and where does it come from, you're taking on the role of being authority. The press is treating you as an authority. But you don't know what you're talking about. Are you not deceiving everybody on the planet? And if so, why are you doing this? Do you not know better? Have you deceived yourself? Are you so deluded that you don't even know you're deluded? And how do you justify this? Because this is not children's play. This is not like having some flippant notion about something distant from human existence. Because you're telling us we are brains. You're telling us as brains. And you often frequently say that, in fact, we have no free will because the brain already has done it before you have the feeling of making a decision. And that's fluff. That's an epiphenomenon. It's an illusion because <laughs> the brain has already done it. After all, the brain is the agent. And your experience is illusory. You keep on telling us that. Psychologists and neuroscientists alike, our first-person experience is illusory. Don't take it seriously. Rely upon the neuroscientists because they know the underlying neural mechanisms of your illusory first-person experience. So who are you going to trust? Your own experience or the neuroscientist? Don't trust your own experience at all because all you're dealing with is illusions. 
for us the neuroscientists, take refuge in us. It's fraud. And it's tragic. Because even they are not following out the implications of their own position. If you really are a brain, you are making no choices at any time. Robots don't make choices. Your computer doesn't make choices. If your brain is a computer, which they say it is, and you are your brain, you are a computer, which means you never make any choice. Free will, no free will. You're not making any choices at all. The brain is the agent after all, not you, and not even your mind. So you're making no choices at all. How does that sit? Would you like to be depressed now, or should we wait a little while until I, until I speak more? Shall we trace the growth of depression to this mind-numbing, soul-killing ideology that's snuffing out any type of imagination for looking outside the box of materialism? That's dehumanizing, reducing us to robots or animals at best, who never make any choices, therefore we have no moral responsibility whatsoever. Because you never imprison a computer, or, or you never punish, you never imprison. You never bring to trial a robot or a computer. Because they have no free choice. They're just programmed. And that's exactly what you're telling us here. We're genetically and neurophysiologically programmed. And then you wonder why morality seems to be slipping? Are you not a major cause of this? You've given us an ideology as our refuge, as authority, which you are grasping. You're clinging to tenaciously. Look to us. We're telling you the underlying neuromechanisms of your illusory experience. You're giving us an ideology that depersonalizes us, dehumanizes us, disempowers us, and demoralizes us. And you don't seem to notice or you don't seem to care. Out of the ideology, it naturally follows that when I come to my medical doctor and say I'm feeling very depressed, I'm feeling quite hopeless, the medical doctor goes to the pharmaceutical industry, the source of the dharma. The pharmaceutical industry is saying, and what's the nature of the mind? It's the brain. Can do. We'll find the drug. Because after all, all psychological disorders are neurological disorders. That means they're malfunctions of chemistry and electricity. So therefore... All psychological disorders should be treated most effectively with drugs. Then when they don't work, then you now have really good grounds for being depressed. Because if they don't work and you are a brain, you're screwed. Because if the people who know most about the brain and about the chemicals in the brain, if they can't help you, then you're hopeless. You're screwed. Who screwed you? Not people, not institutions. It's delusion. All comes to delusion. So I find this enormously sad, but not hopeless. We found the three refuges. They're Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And then we find who's, who's spreading the word? Why, are we, why is this not confined just to them? them? Why does... Why is this now on everybody's lips where people, common people with no scientific training whatsoever using the words mind and brain interchangeably all over the place, globally? How did this happen? How did this mental disease, it seems to be extremely infectious, like typhoid of the mind, bubonic plague of the mind, how is this being transmitted? How do people in Mongolia catch it? And Bhutan and Singapore and China and India, how are they catching this virulent, incredibly toxic virus of the mind. 
by way of the media, by way of the media, international media, BBC, New York Times, Time Magazine, you name it, The Guardian, The London Times, and so forth. It's the media, and they're pretty much, pretty much homogenous. I read this closely. I watch it closely. I'm not an expert, but I read a lot in this area. You know what I find? The media never challenges. They never challenge. The science journalists in particular, they never challenge this. That statement by this head, published in Reuters, do you think the, the journalist said, uh, Mr. Head of Research at this major pharmaceutical industry, what you've just said is utter nonsense. Would you like to rephrase that, or are you just stupid? They never say that. They pass it on. as if the word investigative journalism has no reference in reality at all. They pass it on uncritically. Always. I mean, I am reading this constantly, and I don't see them ever criticizing these metaphysical beliefs and assumptions. Even when it's sheer idiocy, they, they just pass it on. The modern media is the propaganda arm of the Church of Scientific Materialism. And they don't tell you that, but they never question. They never question. One of the most prominent, and I won't give the name, but one of the most pro prominent propagandists of the mid-19th century. It's a, it's a commonly quoted statement. He said, if you tell a lie frequently enough, it will be accepted as truth. If you've heard it before, you know where it comes from. Not a good source. A really incredibly vile and evil source. The person who said that. If you say a lie frequently enough, it will come to be accepted as common knowledge. Well, I've just been narrating a bunch of lies, or at the very best, the most charitable. Delusions uncritically accepted, uncritically transmitted, directly over the pharmaceutical industry, directly to your doctor, directly to the pill you put into your mouth that is poison. So I'll now refer to, refer to these pharmaceutical industries, especially the psychopharmaceutical, as drug cartels. Psychopharmaceutical drug cartels, which is really more destructive. The cocaine dealers, the cartels in Mexico, for example, or Afghanistan, or these, which is more endemic, which has a bigger impact on society as a whole. How many people do you know who are taking cocaine? And how many people do you know who are taking psychopharmaceutical drugs? Where's the larger damage? And which side is going to jail? So there's a triad here, as if there were a conspiracy theory. This I scratch your back, you scratch mine, of the neuroscientific community, because this empowers them. If you've got one community now that said, we're the go-to people, if you want to know about your own identity, the nature of your mind and whatever ails you and what will make you happy. It's all your brain. In other words, whatever your question is, we have the answer. Whatever your question is about your identity, your happiness and your suffering, which we care about, that's where it segues into Shantideva. Whatever your question is, we already have the answer. And the answer is, it's the brain, stupid. That's what Bill Clinton called ideology. An ideologue already has the answers, 
before the question is ever posed. Whatever your question is, we have the answer. It's a brain, and leave it to us. We will tell you who you are. We'll tell you where you came from. We'll tell you what happens at death. We'll tell you what your potential are. We'll tell you where your suffering comes from, where your happiness comes from. We'll tell you how to lead a good life. We're the go-to people. Give us more money. We'll do the research for you. In other words, power, prestige, and money. These are intoxicants. And the whole notion of value of science in any way, any imaginable way, being value-free becomes a laughingstock. Even in the most benign way, value-free in the sense of being free of prejudice and bias. It's a laughingstock. They don't even try. Come to neuroscience. Come to the Society for Neuroscience, the big annual convention, thousands upon thousands. Try to deliver a paper that presents any view of the mind and brain outside of the materialistic paradigm. Try it. Try to get to the podium and see what it's like to get the, the door slammed in your face. Try to go to any scientific peer-reviewed journal from neuroscience and present something that's non-materialistic and see what it's like to see the door slammed in your face. They already have the answer before you pose the question. The answer is you're wrong because we already have the answers and they're all within the materialistic paradigm. By the way, this is rooted in 19th century physics which goes hand in hand with mechanistic materialism. Neuroscientific community is immensely empowered by this and enriched and its prestige goes through the roof. The pharmaceutical industry is making billions of dollars selling us poison to alleviate mental suffering. The medical industry, caught between a rock and a hard place, because I think so many people in the medical industry come out of a sense of altruism. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. What are they supposed to do? The insurance won't pay for it. If you, if you really need talk therapy, and your psychotherapist, your psychiatrist may, may know this is what you really need, you went through tremendous trauma. And what you need is not a drug that's going to that's suppress the symptoms. You need understanding. You need warmth. You need compassion. And this may take two or three months. But I'm sorry, your insurance will not pay for it. So with tears and lamentation, take this drug with my apologies. Because I've just screwed you. I'm not a healer. I'm a drug peddler. And I work for the cartels, but it's legal anyway. enriching for the pharmaceutical industry. Money flows in to the medical industry. The journalists are the propaganda arm of this whole mess. Why do they go along with it? Why? And I'm going to answer the question. Evening news. Watch the evening news in the United States. CBS, ABC, NBC. Those are the three big ones. Then there's Fox News. Uh, you can skip that one. The other ones at least make some pretense of being objective. Watch. Watch not the news. Watch the commercials in between. Every night. And see who's paying for the news. The pharmaceutical industry figures very, very, very large. They'll show you little cartoons of a depressed little blob and how happy the blob becomes when it takes a certain drug. And 
everybody who's got an IQ less than that of a turtle is watching and think, I want that drug because I want to be a happy blob. They're talking down to us like we have crap for brains. But they were so cunning to sidestep the people who can actually assess professionally with compassion and knowledge and high training. Is this drug good for my patients or not? The medical doctors, they were so clever. They managed to get legislation so they could slip around the medical doctors, the whole medical establishment, and go right to the general public, who has no medical training at all, of course, but which is suffering from insomnia, from anxiety, from depression. They go right to the people with no training at all, and they give them a cartoon and some asinine pitch about how this is going to make you happy. And in the bottom line, in a quietly murmuring voice, this make you, may, may, may make you feel nauseous, give liver problems and so forth. Have a nice day. But of course, they can't give the whole list because the advertisement couldn't last that long. It'd be too expensive. <laughs> so you're the news media. And you're getting a major slice of the pie, a major percentage of your revenue that pays your salary from the pharmaceutical industry. What do you think will happen if one of the anchor people for the major news starts blowing the whistle on the sociopathic behavior of the pharmaceutical industry? Gosh, do you think they might pull their ads? Might that be a reason why the media, the journalists, are utterly uncritical, except in the most extreme cases. They just pass it on as if they're all evangelists for the Church of Scientific Materialism. So the media, the journalists are absolutely culpable in all of this. And then there's a fifth, a fifth wheel. The government. The government goes along with all of this. Allows the pharmaceutical industry to advertise to the general public an area where they really have no ethical business doing that at all. The government, using taxpayers' money, actually pours millions upon millions of dollars, just gives them donations to the pharmaceutical industry to come up with more drugs to poison us. The insurance industry pays for it. Because looking at the short term, they figure this is cheaper than psychotherapy. That can go on and on, whereas giving people a drug, it's cheaper. So the insurance industry says, look, we, gotta, we have to follow the bottom line here. And it's cheaper if you just be, give people drugs rather than perhaps months of psychotherapy. It could be $100 an hour or more. Right. So it's a collusion. The problem here is in the system. The neuroscientific community, pharmaceutical industry, the medical establishment, the media, and government. But the victims in all of this are the general public including people who work for all of those industries because they get depression and anxiety like anybody else. So this whole system is pathologically, delusionally dysfunctional. So I've spoken of the need for a renaissance, contemplative renaissance among the world's religions. I've spoken of the need for a scientific revolution in the mind sciences, which has been warded off successfully for 135 years by the dogma, the ideology, the close-mindedness and bigotry and flat-out stupidity of proponents of the scientific materialism. And now I would suggest a third component is necessary for the sake of all beings, especially as humans. We really need a Protestant Reformation protesting 
vehemently, passionately, intelligently, and with a level head. Absolute core reformation of the way this whole system, the neuroscientists start telling the truth and don't blow smoke in our eyes. Pharmaceutical industry try to heal rather than suppressing symptoms and never lie. The medical establishment don't be lackeys, don't be drug pellers for the pharmaceutical industry. They just want to make a buck. Government start protecting the people. You're here to protect us, not collude with this big business. And the media, get a brain. Start being critical. This is your job. You're pathetic. You don't deserve the name of journalists. Call yourself secretaries. Propagandists. You're doing a terrible job. And the impact on humanity is disastrous. So now we go to deep ground. That was contemporary. It's not always been true. But it's true now. And if we don't face it, I think the consequences will just be more and more dire. And everybody suffers, including neuroscientists, people working in the pharmaceutical industry. Everybody suffers. And if the suffering were necessary, then I'd practice equanimity. But compassion stems from the possibility of seeing there could be freedom. And there could be freedom here with good science, with good pharmaceutical research, with good medicine, with good government, and with good journalism. All of those we've experienced in the past. It could happen again. So everybody listening by podcast, if I've overstated, I've tried my very best here, not to you know, speak in hyperbole, fly off the handle, and so forth. I think this is too serious. I reflected on this a lot before I came here. I said, Alan, hold your passions. And Hold your passage in check here. Don't overstate. Then you discredit the whole thing. And this is too important. This is really important. So I've tried my best. Any people listening by podcast are, of course, here. If I've overstated, if I've said untruth, open up a blog and demolish what I've said. If you can't, then pass the word. Pass the word. This is important. So now we go to Shantideva. Oh, we're not going to finish in four days on feelings. It's too important. I'm going right back. But now I'm reading, reading my earlier translation, but I can re- look on the same page to uh, his whole and his commentary. I think I can do it more justice than I did yesterday. I thought it was pretty superficial yesterday. My own explication. So here's Shantideva. Verse 88, people listening by podcast, we're back to verse 88, and I'm reading now from my earlier translation published in the book, still in print, called Transcendent Wisdom. If suffering exists in reality, if it inherently exists, truly exists, why does it not prevent joyful experiences? Okay, just for starters. Well, let's take the analogy. I think this actually makes really good sense. It's not that esoteric or abstract. It can actually make an impact. Think about the analogy. We've already looked at the body, right? That was the first of the four applications, the mindfulness. The body, but then going right down to atoms. Atomistic theory, Democritus, Vibasika, that what the physical world fundamentally consists of, down to brass tacks, reductionistic mode, is fundamental, absolutely core little pellets of physical reality. Atoms, little tiny billiard balls. And they get configured in complex configurations and they manifest and as plants, animals, inorganic chemicals, and so forth and so on. Oh yeah, and there's energy. They interact with energy. So 
There it is. Well, envision that. Envision, it's not too hard to do. What I'm asking you to do now is bring to mind the object of reputation in Madhyamaka. <coughs> envision a very, very tiny, essentially a billiard ball. May as, well, may as well make it spherical. It seems like even electrons are spherical. The last I read, incredibly tiny, but spherical. So that's a nice shape. And so imagine now the fundamental constituents of the entire universe, physical universe, as these little tiny billiard balls. They're hard, they're gnarly, they're tight, they're homogenous. They're absolutely there. And then with energy, whatever, gravitational energy, electromagnetic energy, they congeal, they form complex configurations, and voila. So Richard Feynman, a man of, of the brilliance of Richard Feynman, said all of life can be understood in terms of the configurations of atoms. So he expressed his belief as a true believer in scientific materialism, not his brightest moment. He should have known better. But what can you say? It's part of the education. The education indoctrinates. A friend of mine, research psychiatrist, very bright guy and a very good, good man, good altruistic, altruistic. And we've had conversations about this. He's really top-notch. I'll keep him anonymous as well. He has my admiration, my respect, psychiatrist, research. And I said, you know, really, where's the evidence? The mind is the brain and so forth. He said, you know, it's not there, but my whole training taught me that that was the only way to think. In my whole training, gra a graduate level, all the way through medical training and through psychiatry and so forth, and all of my colleagues ever since then, he's a senior researcher, they never question it. I don't really know how to think outside that box because was, I was never exposed to any alternative view of the mind-brain relationship other than the mind is the brain. So it's hard for me. I'm open, but I really don't have a handle on how to think otherwise and still think scientifically. Because scientifically seems to be thinking materialistically. And that's the great fraud. So here we are. Imagine that billiard ball back to that. There it is. And imagine it's inherently existent, absolutely real, out there in absolute space and absolute time, moving up, bumping into things. Right? If that's inherently existent, that is, it inherently has its own attributes, then, then there was never a point at which it came into existence. It had to be always there. And there's never a way that's going to ever pass away from existence because, again, it's inherently got a vice grip on its attributes. They will not change. It's inherently there. So that's a little permanent phenomenon. And wherever it goes, there it is. Right? In configurations or all by itself, all by its lonesome. Well, that's exactly what quantum mechanics has refuted, but without pursuing that, because we've looked it into that already at some length. Now, but holding that as an analogy, now imagine that there's something analogous to that, an atom, a very large atom, maybe it's a very large molecule, but let's say a very large atom of misery. It's inherently existent. It has its own properties. It's absolutely real, and it's moved into the space of your mind. <coughs> and children now feels miserable. And why? Because this great nucleus, this titanium nucleus of misery has moved into her mind and she says, I feel depressed. Because her mind is possessed by this inherent existent entity, this great big atom of misery. So if that's the case, if her mind has been possessed by this inherently existent atom of misery, then why does it not prevent joyful experiences? 
because we know in actual fact children might be miserable at 5 o'clock. But then at, some, at 6 o'clock, something really nice happens, and she becomes cheerful. But that's not possible, because we know where the out of misery wins. It lodged itself in her mind. And as long as it's there, there's no possibility of being miserable and joyful at the same time. You just can't do that, any more than you can be a placebo and a drug at the same time. And so if she really has this great big titanium core of misery embedded in her mind, that should make it impossible for her ever to experience anything else. Because there'd be no way for an atom of joy to come in. But an atom but you do feel joyful. So now one can imagine there is a possibility. What you need is a pool cue a pool cue. Right? And you need to get that pool cue and come over to children's mind and find that billiard ball of misery and go, bing, and Elizabeth. It pops out of <laughs> children's mind and it pops over to Elizabeth's mind. And she goes, oh, you just made me miserable. That doggone pool cue. Because it's got to go somewhere. It's inherently real. You can't just make it go away. It's inherently real. So if it's not staying in your mind, you need to go <coughs> and hope it comes out your mouth and it goes over to somebody else because it's got to go someplace. But if it can't go anyplace else, then I'm sorry, but you're stuck with misery because somehow that got in there. I don't know where it came from, but you're stuck forever because it's inherently real. And unless you go someplace else, it makes them inherently miserable. You're stuck. You're screwed. So there we are. But now in the same verse, this is a very tightly packed if happiness truly exists, why do savory things and so on not brighten up the pain of grief? Or the alternate translation, if suffering, if suffering truly exists, why does it not oppress the joyful? If delicacies and the like are a pleasure, so this is going to be a better translation, it's my, with my wife as a superb Sanskritist. If delicacies and the like are a pleasure, now we go slowly. We say, wait a minute, this is not that difficult to understand. If delicacies and the like are a pleasure, why do they not please someone struck by grief and so forth? So now this is it's actually attending to something we take very seriously. And that is that happiness, that's a really happy place. Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. There are cars that are ultimate driving machines and they'll definitely make you happy. Just get behind the driving wheel. If it's not a BMW, it's definitely a Porsche. There are people that just make you happy. There are places, there are jobs that are just happy jobs. And there's medicine. That's happy medicine. So that's what he's challenging. Because we say it all the time. This person makes me happy, this is delightful, that's happy, that's wonderful, that's cheerful. It's a cheerful place. It's a cheerful place. Acapulco is a cheerful place. Vladivostok, not so much. So if that's true, well, food, if, that's, if there's happiness, pleasure in the food, then you could have just learned that your dearest loved one just passed away. Never mind, open up. Have some chocolate or whatever your favorite is, but have some happy food. And if the happiness is actually in the substance, 
That should make your grief just vanish because, oh, chocolate. Or, oh, lasagna. But that doesn't brighten up the grief. So that should show right there, but that's, then that's not true. That happiness is not in chemicals. Happiness is not in objects. It's not in appearances. It's not in places, things, or other people. So we continue. You may say that such pleasure is not experienced due to its being overridden by intense suffering. And that is, you may say that, again, this is with this dual strata, that there's intense suffering, but there's still pleasure. Because if you're taking something that really makes you happy, like some really good food or so forth, or listening to some really nice music, some happy, listen to some happy music. You've all heard plasma. Polka. <laughs> Who listens to polka without just wanting to get a smile on your face and starting to go oom-pa-pa, 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 you know. Isn't it happy music? And so the argument here is that you're still grief-stricken, but there's still a current of happiness because you just got some happy input. And his response is, but you're not experiencing that underlying happiness. All you experience is grief. You'd say, it's not making me happy. Turn off the music. The food does not make me happy. Quit stuffing it in my mouth. Turn off the sitcom. It's not funny. And Shantideva's response is, then don't call a feeling that you're not experiencing a feeling. It's not there. You're not getting happiness from that substance. I want to meditate. We're going to take a little bit longer than I thought about feelings, but I think time will be well spent. I don't have any more big agendas. I think now we've covered contemplative renaissance, scientific revolution, and a Protestant reformation in the mental health care industry with all of its five branches. So I don't need to go there again. And now you see somebody actually did say placebo drugs. Let's meditate. Now take executive control over your attention, over your mind, or at least your awareness. Release the conceptual turbulence if it, if it is there. Settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Your respiration in its natural rhythm and your mind. Let it be loose, still, and clear.
Let your awareness hold its own ground. Know the taste. Know the immediate experience of your awareness hovering motionlessly in the present moment, free of grasping. Unmoved by appearances and yet illuminating all appearances and activities of the mind. Some of you have already begun to experience the fact that the more you release grasping and allow your awareness to rest in its own place, allow your mind to settle in its own natural state, that there's a sense of well-being and even joy that emerges from the very nature of your awareness itself independent of any type of stimulation or activity of the mind. Rest in this clear, luminous nature of awareness itself. And let it illuminate both the sensations as well as the feelings arising in the body. And observe that while your awareness illuminates those feelings and sensations, the sensations and the feelings are not in the very nature of your own awareness itself, nor do they intrinsically belong to you. They arise in space, independent upon prior causes and conditions. They are simply what they are, with no ego and no owner.
When a feeling arises within the body, examine it closely, the very feeling itself. Is it like an atom of pleasure or pain? Inherently real, discreet, self-defining, simply witnessed passively? Or are you a participant? which suggests some possibility of degrees of freedom rather than simply being the victim of the suffering and pain arising in the body.
when you eat tasty food. You can, when you closely apply mindfulness to your eating, that the pleasure you experience is not intrinsically in the nature of the taste themselves. You know that if you keep on eating and eating until you don't want to eat anymore. No more pleasure, but the food tastes the same. If you hear lovely music, you can distinguish between the pleasure of hearing the music and the actual sound of the music. Hear it too many times, pleasure vanishes. The pleasure is not in the music, the pleasure is not in the food. How about then the sensations that arise in the body? Whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, is that feeling embedded in the very nature of the sensations themselves? Earth, water, fire, air. Are they already there simply being presented to you? As the sensations are simply presented to you, are the feelings also simply given? or not, examine closely. discerning intelligence, with discerning intelligence examine closely, closely apply mindfulness to the feelings arising in the body and the sensations that act as cooperative conditions for those feelings, which is to say they don't predetermine them. simply catalyze, trigger, or contribute to the emergence of those feelings which are in the very nature of experience, your way of experiencing the sensations. Probe right into the nucleus of the feelings. Is there a core 
like that hypothetical atom that is 100% homogenous atom, can you find the core of feeling? Can you find its nucleus? It is, it, is it internally homogenous? Is it in any way influenced by your observation of it? Can you detect something very subtle? And that is not only your identification with the pain or whatever feeling arises in the body as my feeling, but on a subtler level, the conceptual identification of a feeling as suffering as painful or as pleasant. Can you detect this conceptual imputation? And can you detect that upon which you're imputing this label, this concept, this is painful, this is pleasurable. And can you see that the basis and the imputation are not the same? Can you see that when you do not designate it conceptually as pleasant or unpleasant, 
it was not already inherently so. This takes or requires very, very subtle investigation, close analysis, to see the objective emptiness of that which is designated. Let your awareness be like space. View your body as space. And observe the empty appearances arising from space and dissolving back into space within this field of the body. And be at peace, free of grasping, free of reification.
What is extraordinary about the meditation on emptiness is that when it's done properly, when you really have found a middle way, rather than leading to some sense of emptiness, like life is empty, some kind of a nihilism, some kind of a sheer vacuum, that the realization of emptiness actually naturally emerges or displays itself or gives rise to compassion. Quite remarkable. And how, just on the contrary, when we reify ourselves, when we take our own personal identity as something inherently real, absolutely real, absolutely separate, of course, then that undermines all compassion, because that means we're unrelated. Your problem, your problem. My problem, my problem. Good luck. Quite interesting. But it's also interesting, at least one of you has already discovered this experientially, that if one really makes a point of probing into nature of reality, to see whether or not phenomena are indeed empty of inherent nature, when you start gaining some glimmering there, some insight, some experience, it can give rise to different types of emotions. In one case, grief, sadness, it's all empty. Or in other cases, fear. I'm going to be annihilated. And yet other people experience this bliss. Same, same realization. One experience miserable, fearful. Another person blissful, radiant, joyful. So why? How can that be? What's the taste of emptiness? Terrifying or blissful? They're very different tastes. And then this just highlights a hallmark of contemplative science, radically unlike third-person science. It's just an observation, not a criticism. But contemplative science, you must make your mind serviceable. You must prepare the mind for the deepest insight. So that when you are cultivating the four immeasurables and going deeper and deeper there, cultivating bodhicitta, and you bring that mind to the investigation of emptiness, it gives rise to bliss. Bring a mind that's not so trained, a mind that's really quite habituated and unchallenged in its habituation to the fixation of my well-being, self-centeredness, prioritization of one's own well-being over everybody else's. So that my, my hand always does that. It always goes into the mudra of self-grasping. It's a fist. Right. Let that mindset go unchallenged. And now say, I, I really want to realize emptiness. And you get a bit of taste, and it freaks you out. Instead of finding the greatest possible treasure, which is what the Bodhisattva finds, you find when you get some glimmering into the very emptiness of a separate, autonomous, inherently existent self, you feel you've just lost your most precious treasure. The one who is seeking emptiness winds up being devastated. That's why. Two wings to enlightenment. Two hands in the mudra. Skillful means and wisdom. Olas. Heavy. Sorry for being so heavy. But not very. 
I won't do it all the time, I promise. <laughs> okay. Enjoy your evening.